This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, this month's episode of the R&R Show is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And welcome back everybody. Oh, it's the end of April. April, the best month of the year. At least in my world, let me tell you why. Let me actually walk backwards. You know what happened today, folks? On April 28th, 2022, the day I'm streaming this live on Twitch, I put up the first ever run-through from Amy and Maggie Thinker Themer, one of my favorite board game media people anywhere. I absolutely love them to bits, and they did a phenomenal run-through of Radlands, and um, I can't wait to see what they do next. They will be back next month covering more stuff. So, um, at the end of my of the month of my 10th anniversary of the show, I have brought on now um, what? Shay, and Ryan, and Ruel, and Kim, and now Maggie and Amy, and I am really so happy with how the, uh, um, the, the, the channel has been growing. So right off the bat, it's already a fantastic April. That's what happened today in April. But you know what happened just last week? Shay got married! Congratulations, Shay! Oh, I'm so happy for you. That is fantastic. And you know what happened earlier in the week? Amy and Maggie got married. Once again, proving April, the best month of the year. But you know what happened April 10 years ago? I started filming my show. This has been the month of my 10th anniversary. So another reason. April is awesome. Celebrating the 10th anniversary, um, culminating with Amy and Maggie joining. You know what happened 31 years ago in April, folks? I got married. Uh, happily married to my wife, Jen, uh, back in 91. Oh, uh, and we are still trucking along, happy as we have ever been. You know what happened in April 52 years ago, folks? I was born. Uh, thanks, mom um, and dad. Uh, you know, I, thanks for everything. So April has always been a very good front for me, and I think I'm going to stop my backwards retrospective on April because I'm sure a lot of terrible things have happened in April as well. Like I know, I think Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in April. So let's just stop right there and say nothing of import ever happened in April except for those awesome things, thereby proving once and for all that April is the greatest month of the year. And I'll tell you another reason because I've got 17 games to talk about that were. Uh, um, played by me and others on the channel. And that's what we are here to do, folks. And um, Shay, because he was off getting married and stuff, actually kind of took a month off, hasn't really recorded anything new. He'll be back next month. Don't worry. Uh, he's got to get back to work after he's done with his honeymoon. But to step in for Shay, Kimberly Tolson, Professor Kimberly Tolson, uh, stepped up and recorded three new previews. So let's talk about them first. And I say, take it away, Kim. Thanks, Rado. Yes, Kim here, and I did play three games in the month of April. I'm going to start off with Nightmare Cathedral. Just want to mention Nightmare Cathedral is a paid preview. What a fascinating, immersive, nightmare scape game that has a fantastic 
action selection that really prevents you from picking the same action of five or even actions close to that particular action. And the other thing is those will change from player to player. So while there are five basic actions, I might get a souped up version of it, which is an upgrade. And my upgrade might be different from another player's upgrade. I like that because you really can customize what your actions are in the game. And the other cool thing is that when you play on your turn, other players get to essentially do something as well. So there's no sitting around the table and waiting for your turn to come back around. You're active every single turn doing something. And what are those things? You're sacrificing to um, the, the gods, you're sacrificing your followers, and you're going up on this ritual track. You're moving out on this giant board that has just this beautiful imagery. You're navigating these nightmares that essentially will race around the board at the end of the game, gobbling up all kinds of creatures and followers. It's a really dynamic game, high player interaction, but it's a sure puzzle feature. I think Nightmare Cathedral has a lot going for it. My next game that I played is Damask. And again, Damask was a paid preview. This is an abstract game that I have to say honestly really captured me. Uh, I'm not the biggest abstract fan, like game fan, but it's cool. It's cool and I think it works so, so well. So the first cool thing about the game is that there's this kind of spinner's wheel and it has all these different cubes in it that represent the threads you use to weave your damasks or your kind of woven textiles that you're trying to build. And the way you collect them, really fascinating. So you take a cube anywhere on, on the whole wheel and you go clockwise or counterclockwise until you reach a cube of the same color that you've already taken. That's it. So the max you can take is seven because there are six colors in the game, but it really makes you think about which ones you're taking and which ones you're putting into your overstock because players can steal in this game. And it's not a nasty kind of steal like some games where people take from you and you just feel bad. No, in Damask, when players take from your overstock, you get something, you get a favor token and that favor token can save the day. The other thing too is if they don't steal and you don't use your overstock because you're not planning well, you have to pay taxes at the end of the round. It's a really smart card um, collection game. There's like set collection that comes with how you score. It's lovely, delightful, just a wonderful abstract game. And then lastly, I played Final Girl. Final Girl is just this uber thematic, incredibly exciting and emotional game that simulates the final girl of a horror film, and it does so, so well. So in the game that I played, I'm Lori, and I'm at uh, Camp Happy Trails fighting against Hans the Butcher. <laughs> and Hans the Butcher's wearing like this super creepy, you know, a pig face mask, and he's hor horrifying, right? And you have to really make sure, do I want to go and save campers? Do I want to go and grab all these really cool tools and resources that's going to help me fight? Do I just want to race in there and fight him? Because the whole game is solo and it's you versus the killer. Kill or be killed. So you die, you lose the game. You kill the killer, you win the game. That's it. And even better, there are just wonderful ways to use the dice, wonderful ways to mitigate the dice. So yes, there are dice. It is a little bit luck-based, 
but you also have this fascinating, um, what is it, deck builder part of it. And your, your cards don't always stay in your deck and you have to expend them and you have to put them on cooldown or lockdown. So there's this fascinating play between dice and cards and it has the best feature of any game ever, which is do they actually die at the end or not? Is there a twist? And so they might not actually die. You might not die. Oh, it's loads and loads of fun. Again, super thematic and just a great way to play a game by yourself. I, I couldn't think of another game I'd want to pick up right now than Final Girl. Well, thank you so much. And back to you, Richard. Thank you, Kim. So, that was it for Kim. Our second month on the channel, a big month. Three big games covered. But, uh, as excited as I'm about that, I am also, as I said, very excited about Amy and Maggie, Thinker-Themer, the Thinker and Themer themselves, doing their first run-through for the channel, Radlands. And I'll be honest, folks, I was not really interested in Radlands. This is a post-apocalypse, oh, I've got my um, ragtag group of survivors, you've got yours, and we're just trying to wipe each other out as we fight over water. Um, you know, very, very Mad Max inspired, which of course makes it so appropriate that um, you know the. Uh uh, the, the girls from Down Under would be covering this game. But they absolutely love it, and they talked about this in their final thoughts. They, generally speaking, are kind of care bears themselves, especially Maggie. But this is a game that breaks the rules for them, and they find themselves really enjoying it. And, folks, you have to check out that run-through that just went up at the end of the month, as I mentioned right up front, because I had so much fun watching it. I can imagine maybe I would enjoy this as well, even though it kind of goes against all of my principles. I don't want to attack you. I don't want want to steal your stuff or, or kick down your sandcastle. And that's what this game is all about. But it's so fast playing, so high octane and so thematic. And I'll admit, I, you know, I, I love, um, you know, a fury road and all the rest of it. So a game that really brings that to life and does it with so much color and vibrancy and really sharp design. Well, Amy and Maggie kind of sold me on their first run through for the channel ever. Radlands. So, uh, that was it for contributors this month. And so now we are going to talk about 13 more games that Jen and I have played over the last four weeks or so. And uh, I'm going to be doing this in countdown format, starting with our least favorite and ending with a new game of the month. So, although I did, we didn't play any bad games this month. Actually, if I play a bad game, generally speaking, I just won't talk about it at all, uh, because that's the way I was raised. If I don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Just... Get, put the game in the trade pile and move on to the next. But all 13 of these games have really, really cool elements in them. And I'm going to start out with number 13, Legends of Hellas. And the interesting thing about this game, this is a very, very light, family-friendly, cooperative game where players are actually trying to work together to take out a series of mythological creatures that are, um, you know, hell-bent on destroying us. The art is fantastic, and the gameplay is super quick and elegant. As part of setup, a bunch of different creatures, uh, minotaurs, medusa, what have you, are randomly chosen and placed out on the board. 
Each one of them is a location, and each player has a little disc that represents them as a player. And you're going to move from one creature to another to another and play cards to that creature that match the symbols that are their weakness. Do you have to outthink them? Do you have to outfight them? Do you have to beat them with ranged attacks or whatever it might be? And everybody has a handful of cards in their hand. And um, really, success here is figuring out, well, who should go fight who based on the cards you've got? The tricky thing is, this is an imperfect communication game. You can't tell anybody what cards are in your hand. And so, you have to make a lot of of informed decisions about where you're going to go and what you're going to do based on what you see your teammates doing. And that creates for some really interesting, um, intense moments. But, uh, you know, particularly because you have the opportunity to hand cards or uh, to, to your teammates or, um, you know, try to uh, collude and work together. And another important thing is you only have a few cards. If you run out of cards, it's over. You lose the fight. Um, and every action you do, whether it's just move around, try to give a card to somebody else, you have to sacrifice cards. So you're, 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 you're losing them as fast as you can use them. And you cannot afford to be wasteful with these at all. And and um, what you will often find happening is that um, one of your actions can be the Oracle, because drawing back cards is incredibly important too, and you don't want to draw randomly and get a bunch of cards that you know somebody else needed. So players do have the option to say, oh, let me look at the next few cards in the deck, and I'll put them back in an appropriate order. That is the most interesting moment of the game, and it's also the most challenging, because you have to know, right, okay, you clearly need this, but maybe you already have it, but you haven't done it yet. How am I going to move forward? So the imperfect communication really creates a lot of tension. So, um, you know, and, and, the, and the, it's sharp, it's fun, it's easy to teach, it's fast, it comes with, I forget, like six different scenarios of di- varying difficulty levels, so different setups. And um, why did it come in at the lowest? Because it is a very lightweight game. This would be a wonderful game, I think, to play with friends and family who are new to the hobby, but I would not recommend this as a game for hardcore gamer geeks like me and Jen, who have played hundreds of hours of cooperative games, because because the imperfect communication, Jen and I are often able to anticipate what the other person needs. So for us, even when we bumped it up to the high difficulty levels, it was a little bit too easy to play. But we did agree it was very smooth um, and charming and wonderful presentation. My number 13 of the month, Legends of Hellas. Then we go on to number 12, Switch and Signal. And the interesting thing about this one is it is a cooperative pick-up-and-deliver train game. And that makes it very interesting, very unique, quite unlike anything else on the market. So this is certainly one of the ones I was most excited about playing because I love. I would much rather play a co-op game than a competitive game. And while pick-up-and-deliver is not really my jam, I have occasionally found pick-up-and-deliver games that work really well. Like uh, last month, we were really impressed by... Autobahn, a game that's uh, uh, raising funds right now, because that was a pick-up-and-deliver game where the trucks that were delivering stuff would move of their own accord. And that's what really attracted me to this game, too. Because our job in this game is to run the signals and switches on an existing rail line um, all over Europe and try to make sure that there are open paths for the trains that have to go to cities to pick up goods and then deliver them to other cities. And the trains move on their own, autonomously. It's our job 
just to try with a limited set of moves to stay ahead of those trains and uh, make sure they are going to go in the right direction by readjusting the switches and signals because we have a limited hand of cards and we can sacrifice multiple cards to do wild actions, but we have to um, work a lot. Okay, I can take care of that. If, if the train doesn't move, I'll get that thing going south on my turn. Oh no, it moved. It was the one we were hoping it wasn't moving. Now it's going off to the west. Can we reroute it in another direction? It actually feels fairly thematic for an abstract uh, game. And uh, yeah, it's really sharp. So why did it come in at number 12? Well, first of all, I should say the uh, collaboration between players is great. We really spent our entire time working and trying to solve the puzzle. And it was a nice, fun, challenging puzzle too. I was just a little bit disappointed because I thought the pick up and deliver was going to be, oh, the game handles all that by yourself. But one of the actions you can do is move the trains. You're like, okay, I'm not going to wait for that train to move on its own because it might not move for a while. I need to move it now so I can change these switches. And that's fun. That's a cool moment. But I found, since I don't like pick up and deliver, for my taste, I was still a little too personally responsible for making these trains slowly move across the map. If they moved 100% outside of our control, and maybe we could just adjust the speed of them rather rather than deciding when they do and don't move, that would have bumped it up a few. But, uh, folks, if you like cooperative games and you like trains and you are looking for... and you don't... and you like Pick Up and Deliver, my gosh, you have to check out this game. It's like this game was made for you. Uh, because the theme is really strong. There are special uh, powers you can use that you have to use at the right time. It's a fun puzzle. You just gotta go, go into it knowing that, oh, this is cooperative Pick Up and Deliver. I've never tried that before. Maybe it's really cool. And um, you should probably know, based on your own predilections, if that's gonna work for you. Number 12 of the month, Switch and signal. Then we move on to number 11, Megalomania. Now, this is an interesting one. This is a fantasy-themed, oh, what'd you call it? Uh, trick-taking card game. It is a competitive trick-taking card game. But I'll be honest, folks, I would I would be willing to bet the developers of this probably took some inspiration from um, the developers of, oh, what's it called? Uh, cannot think of the word the crew. Um, because uh, it, it's it's not as simple as, oh, look, I've got my hand of cards. I just want to win as many tricks as I can and, and all the rest of it. Every round, and you play through multiple rounds where everybody gets a, a certain number of cards in their hand, and you're going to do trick-taking. You know, uh, lead cards, um, you know, trump suits, and uh, you know whoever plays the highest of the lead, if you can't follow, you have to play something else. That means you're going to lose. All, all the normal trick-taking card stuff is here. And um, the trick is, at the beginning of every round, everybody gets a certain number of cards, and a mission, a quest, is drawn from the deck that says, oh, to win this quest, you have to win an even number of tricks. Or you have to win tricks only only with blue cards, or you have to lose every trick, or you have to lose more than you win, or you have to lose an odd number of times, or whatever it might be. And everybody sees that and is like, oh, okay. And so the puzzly nature of, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to, I mean, I look at my hand of cards. I think, wow, I've got a strong hand of cards. I'm probably going to win a lot. If I need to win exactly an even number of times and there's going to be five rounds, I need to win either two or four of these. Can I pull that off? So this extra level of complexity really elevates it. And this is the same kind of thing you see for the missions in the crew. But this game goes much deeper than the crew because after you see the mission, after you see your cards, everybody at the start of the round makes a choice. Would you like to get two crystals, which activate special powers on your cards. So, when you play a card, if you use a crystal and you're like, oh, I'm going to lose this trick, um, you could. Uh, but I play the card that says, oh, low number wins now, I could suddenly win the trick, but I have to use up those precious crystals. 
to activate the special powers of these cards. Or you can get a bunch of these black cubes, which are a resource that lets you change the value of a card. So you have a bunch of these, you're like, oh, you played a six, I have to follow with a four, I'm going to lose. Okay, I'll follow, and I'll put three of my little cubes on, turning my um, four into a seven, I win! But then the player next to me, oh, you've still got some cubes too. Are you going to be able to beat me? Should I save my cubes for later? So, and then there's a third type of resource you can get, and you get to choose. Do I want the crystals? Do I want the cubes? Or do I want these scrolls? And these scrolls are super powerful things that in various and ways pretty much let you win whenever you want. Or lose whenever you want. And so you've got to make a choice of what combination of these things do I want based on my hand, based on the mission that tells me how many times I need to win or lose over the next five or eight or whatever rounds it is. And it's really clever. I thought it was very, very sharp, very well done. And if you like um, if you like trick-taking, but you want something more, uh, if, if you like the crew and you wish, boy, I love the idea of the crew, but why isn't it competitive? That's what Megalomania gives you. A competitive trick-taker with a lot of really interesting decisions because of all the special powers that the cards have, but only if you can pay for them, or the ability to manipulate the cards as you go, always trying to hit the current mission. It was very, very sharp. Why doesn't come in higher? I mean, it's not the gameplay. The design is great. But playing this game made me realize I am only interested in playing cooperative trick-takers because this is a very, especially as a two-player game, a very cutthroat game where you're constantly, just every step of the way, every thought is bent towards, right, how can I trick you? How can I outwit you so that you win and I lose or I win and you lose or whatever it is I'm trying to do? And Jen and I found we just didn't like doing that to each other. Um, where I mean, we like bu- either working together or building our own things without hurting each other. This game is a constant constant, non-stop attack, as you're constantly trying to outwit your opponents, and the game gives you so many tools to do it. I'm really impressed by it. If you wanted the crew to be competitive, you owe it to yourself to check out uh, number 11, Megalomania. Then we move on to number 10, Animalia. Another trick-taking game. Yes, I tried another one, but this one is cooperative. And I have to admit, I was really impressed by this. Not only do I really like the theme, which is all about saving endangered species all around the world in different countries, but this is a trick-taking game, like Megalomania before it, or like the crew, that um, every time you set up gives everybody unique missions that they have to work on. So again, it adds an extra level of complexity. There's not just like this one universal thing. Um, you know, in a given time, I might have to win four South American tricks and one of them has to be an elk. And then one, a fifth trick in this round has to be, I have to win one that will give me an elk from anywhere in the world except South America because that's what my funding is and I have to win those types of tricks. And meanwhile, you have to win European tricks, uh, but you also need an elk. And so how are we going to work together to make sure you can win all the tricks you need to win, and I can win all the tricks I need to win. Again, playing fairly standard trick-taking rules. The lead card says what everybody else has to play. The high card wins. Everybody takes the trick. And now here's the interesting thing. This Animalia is a co-op game for one, two, or three players. And like the crew, it introduces... If you've ever played the crew as a two-player game, which I love, it introduces a third player, a wildlife agency that we all work for. And in the crew, this third player was just kind of like a a dummy player that replicates a third player. But in this game, it's actually a player that does a completely different thing. The Wild... I forget the name. The the WFA, the Wild Federation Association player, who, if you're playing a three-player game, somebody takes on that role. And if you're playing a two-player game or a one-player game, that role is automated and we make choices for them. Their job is to raise funds. Because um, the low-value cards we can play have special powers. The high-value cards we can play raise money money. 
And um, the thing is, we as individual agents can't raise money. So if we win a trick using a high-value card, hey, we won the trick we needed to do, but we didn't get the funds. If the third player wins a trick with a high-value card, they get the funds. And they can distribute the funds to us, the actual agents, so we can use the special powers of the low-value cards. And this is freaking brilliant. I was really really impressed a lot with Animalia. Um, it has that same kind of, oh, how to puzzle out, when do I want to win, when do I want to lose, when do I want you to win, when do I want you to lose. We all have to figure this out together. We can't talk about what's in our hands, so we have to intuit what you might be able to do based on what you've done in the past. And it's got a great presentation. It's fast. It's puzzly. It works really, really well. So why didn't it come in higher? Two things. One, um, like the crew before it, if you're not really attuned to um, trick-taking tile games, this can be a challenging game to try and figure out because it's so counterintuitive. Half the time I want to win, half the time I want to lose. I want you to win, I want you to win. Trying to keep all that in mind for my wife, Jen, was a challenge. And in the same way, the crew is a challenge for her. But if anything, this one, the win conditions that we are all trying to navigate are more complex. And so for Jen, it was a little bit too much. And I say this knowing that Jen is a better gamer than me. She can handle Agricolas and Arc Novas all day long, but this one really burned her brain in a big, big way for such a tiny little trick-taking game. Me, I loved it. I was really into it. The other thing, though... If there's one complaint I have about the design, remember, if you're playing as a solo or a two-player game, there's that third player that is the WFA or whatever, whatever the, uh, the, the Wild Fund Association, whatever it is. In the crew, they have a similar thing where there's another player who you get to see half of their cards and the other half are hidden. In this game, you get to see that third, all of that third player's cards. And honestly, I did not like that as much as the crew's approach where you it's imperfect information. I know either you have the card I don't see or I know the dummy player has it, but I don't know which one of you do. In this game, I know where all the cards are. You can count them. You can figure it out because you can see all of the third player's cards. And I can see all of my cards. And so that led to a lot more cards counting. And honestly, you kind of needed to do it because of the extra level of complexity with all of the missions we're trying to manage. But I still kind of wish they had adopted the crew version where I can see half of the WFA's hand and the other half will slowly be drip fed. So I can never be 100% certain where the, the, the North American Grizzly card is. Because, okay, Oh, I see. They don't have it. I don't have it. I know you have it. And I can make moves knowing that you can figure that out, but I just want that little extra little bit of unpredictability. Honestly, I think a great homebrew variant for this, which would increase the difficulty, would be only get to see half of the third player's cards, and they get slowly drip-fed over the rest of the game. But that's my only complaint. And, um, you know, this Animalia, for fans of the crew, you especially if you can play it as a three-player game, you definitely owe it to yourself to seek it out, because I think it does the crew in a fresh new, interesting way, and it really changes up the formula. That's number 10 of the month, Animalia. Then we move on to number 9, Shinkansen Zero Kai, which is the latest game from the husband and wife design team, um, Isa and... Uh, or Isra and um, oh, I can't remember their names. It's it's like uh, their 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 designer name is the first four letters of each of their first names. I can't remember them, but 
I apologize, I don't remember your names, but I remember your games. Red Cathedral was one of the 10 best games of, was it last year or the year before? And so I couldn't wait to try Shinkansen, which is all about building the world's first bullet train line in 1960s Japan, getting ready for the 64 Olympics. And this game is brilliant. It is. It has kind of at its heart a King Domino-style card draft, because every round there's going to be a certain number of cards that come out, and players take turns grabbing one, and that will determine turn order, and that will also determine what special powers you give yourself for the rest of the game. Because in this game, we are trying to prepare cities to get um, stations built, then we're trying to build the stations, then we're trying to run rail to those stations um, to get everything hooked up in time, because we only have five years to get ready to build as much of the line as possible. But the interesting thing is, every time I grab one of these cards, it will give me new powers and will also determine player order, um, You know, which again, is kind of a King Domino thing, I am also giving myself goals. If I take this particular card that says Tokyo, I suddenly, it's incumbent on me to ensure Tokyo is hooked up on the line or else I will lose points. And so, if I get a few Tokyo cards, and I was like, oh crap, I gotta get Tokyo up and running, and I put a really valuable station in Tokyo, everybody else can see what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden, every Tokyo card that comes out for the rest of the game, everybody wants to grab it, because if other people get it instead of me, they get points the same way I would off of all the work that I did. And so, that really adds an extra level of depth and complexity in terms of what was already a really interesting draft. On top of that, another cool thing is all the different powers of gathering resources, laying track, all the different actions you have to do. Some of them you can do with your own card, but some of the actions can only be done on other people's trains. And if I want to use actions on your train, I can do it by paying you money. And as you might imagine, that creates for some tense moments as well, because, oh, uh, you know, somebody who has this, okay, I know you're going to pay me the money, so I'm not going to raise money right now. I'm going to do a free um, you know, uh, grounds for preparation, because I know you're going to pay me the money you need, because you need to do this action on my train, don't you? Let's see what happens. And that level of interaction is wonderful. Players are so intertwined in this game. Everything I do affects you, and vice versa. And we only have five short years to get this thing done. And if all that weren't enough, we also need to spend time and effort um, uh, con- contributing to the actual preparation for the Olympic venues in three randomly chosen cities. And if we don't do that, we lose a lot of points, a lot of prestige at the end of the game, too. So it's an incredibly tiny, tight little package with a lot of stuff going on. I was very, very impressed by our number nine of the month, Shinkansen Zero K. Then we move on to number eight, Voyages, which is a very, very cool game. Because um, this is available as a print-and-play. Um, actually, it was hugely successful on Kickstarter late last year. Um, because what happens is, for, what is it, four pounds sterling, you know, four UK or um, British pounds, which is what, like five and a half dollars in the United States, you set up a subscription service where they will send you PDFs or JPEGs of maps of an evolving, changing world that will let you play more and more adventures in this fun little bingo-style roll and write, where we are sailing around. Every round, there are three dice rolled. Everybody looks at those three dice, picks one die to determine their heading, where they're going to direction they're going to sail, another die to determine how far they're going to sail, and they must go exactly that far, and a third die that will unlock special bonuses depending on what mission you're playing. And the challenge of this game is very, very high. Trying to make smart decisions about you know keeping your options open so depending on where you go, you're always happy with the results. Um, using your sailors, which are a limited resource to change the value of the dice. Upgrading your sailors to heroic sailors so they can um, give you more control of the dice, but then they can also be used for 
for other things, trying to visit all the different islands that will give you different types of point scoring opportunities. And again, every map so far, if you, um, for again, four pounds, subscribe to this, they have released um, four unique maps so far, and they plan to keep doing it. This is one of the best deals in all of Board Game Dumb. I have now played three of the four. Ruel and I um, played our first game of the uh, first map uh, live as an RVR show earlier this month, and then Jen and I spent uh, the next couple of nights playing them um, on our couch in the evening before we started watching shows because this is a roll and write with just three dice. And now, it does require you to print the stuff out yourself. Although the interesting thing is the developers have put together a video you can find on BoardGameGeek that says, hey, if you don't want to print these out, here are some digital alternatives you can use if you have a a laptop or an iPad or an Android device that will let you basically turn these into little um, digital roll-and-write games. But me... I have every intention of of going down to the local Kinkos. They don't have Kinkos anymore. The local FedEx office now, printing all multiples of all the maps out, getting them laminated, and keeping this game because it is fantastic. It gave me real on-tour vibes, and on-tour is one of the greatest rolling rights of all time, and Jen agreed. She was really excited and had a blast. So did Ruel when he and I played this live. Uh, you can actually uh, go watch, and if you pay the four pounds to download, you can see if you can beat Ruel's and my score with the run-through that we did um, with the RVR. Great, fun game, really atmospheric, and so much variety with every new map that they are releasing. We are both, or all of us, are very, very impressed by number eight of the month, Voyages. But then we move on to number seven, Maracaibo Uprising. Another game about sailing in the Spanish main. And here's the thing. I mean, I covered Maracaibo quite a while ago. Uprising was a very exciting expansion for me because it does a bunch of stuff. It gives you a whole new storyline to play through, which personally I appreciate, I love. Um, But more importantly, it gives you the option to play Maracaibo as a cooperative game. And April was really interesting. There were three games Jen and I played that are traditionally very well-received, very um, highly respected, very popular, big sellers that are only competitive. And all three of these got co-op modules. And so, even though of these three games, Maracaibo is my personal highest... Maracaibo is in my top 20 games of all time. I love it to pieces. But it was my least favorite of these three. Hey, let's make a great um, competitive Euro into a co-op. And don't get me wrong. Jen and I really enjoyed it as a co-op. I think it does a really great job of giving you an automated player that both players are working as a team to beat. Um, And it does a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, what impressed me most about the game is um, the developer's willingness to address the concerns that a lot of people brought up with the original game about how, hey, the the fantasy role we are playing in this game is one of a, a supporter of the colonizers of the Caribbean. And maybe we don't want to do that. Maybe um, that's not a really fun fantasy to um, portray, to be working for the English and the Spanish and the, and the um, French to just maintain the status quo of colonization. And so um, we were... Hold on a second, folks. My phone is ringing. How exciting. I'm doing this live. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. 
Okay, folks, it was a junk call, unfortunately, so let's get back to it. What was I just saying? Oh, I'm really impressed with how the developers took on board all the feedback they got from folks they're unhappy with the thematic assumptions of the original game, and so they've addressed it. Because in the Uprising expansion, the story is no longer about maintaining the status quo of uh, the Spanish main and European control over everything, but instead uh, helping the local indigenous people throw off the yoke of oppression. They are uprising, and it's our job, depending on which mode you play, to instead of help fight with the, uh, you know, alongside the English, the Spanish, and the French, to fight against them and kick them out. And I loved that. I was mostly excited going in, uh, expecting to really love the cooperative play. And I do like the cooperative play, but whether you're playing cooperatively or competitively, you have the opportunity now to basically seed the board with all the cubes that represent the, um, you know, the colonizing powers. And much like the virus cubes in Pandemic, work to get them off the board and send them packing and bring freedom to the Caribbean. And aside from the fact that it, that is just, in gameplay terms, a much more interesting and engaging story. Helping a David and Goliath type fight and, and persevering. But it's so much more satisfying to clean things up. The physical um, you know, elements of picking things up and returning them or converting them into points and all that is just more fun. The game is um, better. It is a more fun gameplay experience with these changes. So I have to say, I was so impressed with the developers willing to I mean, not dismissing concerns, but instead trying to work with uh, the game community to make it a more inclusive and inviting game, to make it a uh, more engaging narrative for the game, and also to make it more fun at the same time. That is a win-win-win. So, um, back to what I said. The one complaint I had about the cooperative nature is there's no real direct connection between players. We never actually... There's no mechanism to say, hey, if we both go to the same port, we can trade items or stuff like that. And I would have wished to see something like that. Because if you're playing in the cooperative mode, which, again, we really enjoyed, you're pretty much playing a multiplayer solitaire game where we all have one common goal. And I think they could have done a little bit more there. But I'm so impressed by everything else they did that I absolutely adore number seven on the list for the month, Maracaibo Uprising. Then we move on to number six, a uh, paid preview that I did for Citrus, which is uh, very interesting because this is a Blade Runner, cyberpunk-esque, you know, William Gibson uh, style uh, world that is a Euro. This type of game is normally not a Euro economic goods conversion type thing. These are normally games with lots of combat, lots of uh, narrative, RPG, storytelling stuff, but not this time. This time, this is a game where we live in this world, and we are trying to gather the resources we need to convert them into victory points uh, by fulfilling recipes. Doing standard Euro-y type stuff that I tend to love, but in a, uh, in a world that we don't normally see it in. So right off the bat, that was really great. But what really impressed me about Citrus was... Um, a, a bunch of really interesting mixes from different ideas from different games. Uh, one of them is the, uh, what do you call it? This central, the tree from Everdell, which is largely a gimmick to have a really great Chesil presence, returns here because there is a floating city, Citrus, uh, that everybody's trying to get to. But it's three levels huge, and each level has different functions, so it actually gets worked in as gameplay. This is a worker placement game that's pretty straightforward with the worker placement, but what you're doing with the worker placement is trying to develop 
develop your character. Um, because everybody has a, a particular person they're playing in this world, and there are these missions you can go on. And when you complete these missions, your character becomes better either at you know getting basically government subsidies, you know, getting passive income every round, or um, being able to piggyback off other players like Race for the Galaxy and getting things when other players do certain actions. Or you could focus on developing your character to get discounts on certain actions you might want to do. Or you could focus on developing your character to be able to have more mercantile stuff so you can do goods conversions at a much higher rate. And in other RPG adventure style games, oh, all of the ways I develop my character are usually better ways to kill things. Um, but in this game, it's better ways to do basic commerce. And so I love that. Uh, that you know, there's this RPG-esque um, leveling up character development system in a Euro style game, in a uh, world that we don't normally see. But there's other things too. And probably, I could talk about a lot of features of this game. You can watch my run-through to see more. The most impressive thing is the area control. Because every time we do one of these missions that allows us to level our character up so we can do more stuff later, there are other things about these missions we earn. They um, There's a set collection element where we're trying to do certain types of missions to get bonuses. We're trying to do missions against certain factions to get bonuses. We're trying to do missions for other factions to get bonuses. So we've got these three different levels of set collection, but they all play out on this area control hex Grid, where whenever we do a mission, we mark on the, the hex of the, the grid of the city, where did we do that mission? And that is an area control game that is very interesting, because um, over the course of the game, we will spend the resources we're gathering to build these tubes, these towers, that will get us up to the floating city, where we will get big, huge points, which is awesome. But to do that, we have to pull our cubes off of the grid and put the tower where our cube was. And once the tower has been built, so I could send somebody up to to the Cloud City, um, then the tower remains, and it becomes a thing that people fight over with area control. And because to build that tower, I had to remove my workers from the board to make the tower, I have reduced my area control of that. So chances are, I have made it easier for other players to get the points off of the work I did so that I could ascend up to Citrus. And I have never seen an area control game do this, where we're fighting for area dominance to score points. But the things we're actually fighting over with, you know, um, you know, area majority stuff only come about if we remove our workers from the board. So we make ourselves weaker to put the point scoring opportunities on the board that other people or us can then fight for. And that's a really cool system that is very, very fresh and unique. So Citrus has a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Very impressive. First time design. Um, you know, it has kind of vibes of Wingspan, of Lords of Waterdeep, and then it does a whole bunch of really cool new stuff I've never seen before as well. I was very impressed with number six, Citrus. But then we move on to number five, um, Concordia Solitaria. Now, this is the second game of the month I'm talking about that takes a classic, well-loved uh, Euro-style masterpiece from Mackerts, Concordia, and turns it into either a solo game or a two-player cooperative game. I played the solo game last year when it was in, a, in early prototype form and was really impressed. But this month, I got to play it as a two-player co-op with Jen, and I loved it to pieces. It's still the same great super tense Concordia gameplay of trying to grab cards that are there again there's a set collection element for in-game scoring but we need these cards as a hand management thing to spread our dominance control across the uh, Roman Empire and set up colonies and then we have to harvest those colonies to get the resources to be able to buy more cards or to build more colonies and you know just ex expand our influence throughout the game and you know Concordia has always been one of the true modern greats 
but it is a competitive race game. Now, it can be a cooperative for two-player game, because what happens is all the cards of the original game have been replaced with new cards. They do the same stuff. There's still the the senators and the, the prefects and all that that let us do all our normal actions. But now, on these new versions of the cards, each card lists what the opponent does. We have an opponent called Contrarius, and we have to work together to beat Contrarius. You take an average of our combined scores, and it has to beat Contrarius' score. And what does Contrarius do? This is not a complex Automa AI system. This is a system where when I play a card, I know what I'm going to do. And by the way, you get to do the same thing. Every card I choose to play, my um, you, my teammate, get to do as well. This is basically borrowed from the team game that was introduced in Concordia... Um, was it Concordia Salsa? No, Concordia Venus introduced this really wonderful team play, and now it's been turned into two-player cooperative play. But after... if So if I I play my prefect. I get to do my uh, prefect action. You get to do it. And then we look at the card, and Contrarius does something completely different. And Contrarius, every time we do something, we're deciding what we get to do, but um, what I do, what my teammate does, and what our combined opponent does. And that is such a simple, elegant, and brilliant puzzle. Both Jen and I were very impressed. And... Unlike Maracaibo, which you know featured no real interplay between us, we were just playing our own games, here we are mostly still playing our own game. But the fact that when I play a card, I'm letting you do something. So we have to coordinate. Every time I play a card, it's really important I pay attention to what your needs are, because I'm going to let you do stuff as well. But also, we get to share our money. We get to pool our resources. So if you're ever a little broke, that's okay. I've got some extra cash. I'll hand it over to you. This is what that kind of direct, just reaching out and touching and interacting with somebody is what I was missing in Maracaibo, and Concordia Solitaria delivers on every front. Concordia was always fantastic. And the interesting thing is, this Solitaria set of rules works for every expansion, every map that has ever come out for Concordia to date. So it's absolutely awesome. It's my number five of the month, Concordia Solitaria. Then we move on to number um, four of the month, a wonderful roll and write called Three sisters. And um, yeah, this is basically um, the. Uh, oh, what was it? Your roller rights have been around. Well, Roland Wright's have been around since, what, the 50s? Ever since Yahtzee? But Roland Wright's have been going through a huge explosion of popularity over the last few years. And um, we've been seeing all kinds of takes on them. But one of the most outstanding ones, it came out almost half a decade ago now, I think, was Fleet the Dice Game. Because it was the first one to introduce the idea of, hey, how about a Roland Wright that has so much stuff going on, you each player needs two sheets to keep track of all the things you could do. And you know, since then, we've seen other games do this. Um, like Hadrian's Wall, for example. But this is from the same design as Fleet the Dice Game. And I would say, to date, this Roll and Write has more potential in it for huge, incredibly explosive strings of combo gameplay, more so than anything else. Ever since Gone Shown Clever came out and one didn't win the Spieldish Yaris and really opened up the eyes of the industry say, you know what? what's great in a roll and write? Amazing strings of combo moves. I do this one thing that unlocks that, that beep, pop, beep, pop, pop, pop. that's what Gone Shown Clever, or That's So Clever, did. Um, you know, uh, Three Sisters says, hold my beer. I'm going to take that to an extent we've never seen it before. And um, it's so... In in fact, this game gets so rich and complex with all the different strings of combos you can unlock as the game goes on in what is, you know, on its surface, a, a really cool, simple, straightforward dice drafting game where every round... 
I'm going to grab a die. There's a certain number of dice rolled. I'm going to grab a die to do an action. You're going to grab to do a die to do an action. Um, and uh, then there's a die left over that everybody gets to do. You know, it's, it's that kind of structure. We've seen this, gosh, we've seen this in uh, La Granja, that approach. Uh, so every round, players are already going to get to do a bunch of actions with the dice that they get access to. But those actions can start creating such huge, big strings of, oh, because of, you know, of cause and effect chains. So much so, this is the first time I've seen a roll and write that devotes a certain portion of your board to a journal. It's called the journal. Because sometimes you unlock so many bonus actions that you can't keep track of it all. And so you literally have to start taking notes. Right, I got to make sure I got, okay, I got a wild card action. I got another wild card action. Okay, and then I've got another watering action. Okay, I'll do this watering action. Oh, and that unlocked two actions. Okay, make notes of those. Okay, now I'm going to do my first wild card action. All right, and now I'll do my second. Oh, and that gave me two more actions. You literally have to take notes because this game gets so big and rich and complex as it goes. And I was blown away by it. I think it's fantastic. I love it to bits. For my wife, she thought it was too much of a good thing. Um, she's like, okay, you, you know what? I loved Gonshon Clever, and I loved Hadrian's Wall, and I loved Fleet the Dice Game, and I love um, you know nice, really combo strings, but for her, it was just a little bit too much. Um, this could have probably made my um, personal... I'm, I'm dro- knocking it down a couple levels, because for Jen, it was just... it was. Too much of a good thing is what she kept saying. It's like, ah, I, it's, it's, you know, a, a game where I literally, it's so big, I have to literally take notes to myself was more than she wanted. But me, I, it turns out I love that. And I would love to see more of it. I was super impressed over the moon by number four, Three Sisters. But then we move on to number three, Hacktivity, which was a uh, another paid Kickstarter preview. And this is another cooperative game. Oh, April was a great month for co-op. Uh, I have played more game, co-op games this month than I have in a long time, and I'm loving it because co-op is my favorite. So what has Hacktivity got going on? Um, well... This is a game that's actually going to be launching on Kickstarter next month in May. Or maybe it was on GameFound. It's going to be crowdfunding in May, so you can keep an eye out for it. But at its heart, this is an imperfect communication co-op. My favorite thing in the world. Ever since Hanabi came out and introduced us to that idea where, okay, I'm going to do this thing, and I hope you figure out what I'm, why I'm doing this, um, and you can make the right choice, and we really have to get in sync with the other player, and um, you'll make informed decisions based on what you've seen them do. I love imperfect communication, and the way it works here is, at the beginning of it, we are in cyberspace, um, fighting viruses, you know, and um, each of us is a hacker with our own special powers and our own unique deck of cards. And there is another deck of cards that's built as part of setup that represents the viruses we're trying to kill. And every round, at the beginning of the game, all players draw a certain number of cards. At the beginning, everybody draws three cards. It speed, the game speeds up as it goes on, starting to draw four or five cards every round. But what you do is, I can draw as many cards as I want from my deck and from the virus deck. And then, I have to resolve all of those cards. And at the same time, I'm making that decision, right, how many evil um, cards that are trying to kill us am I going to draw, versus how many cards am I going to draw that are going to save us? And I have to, I mean, I can just, wow, I, we're both almost dead. I just need to draw nothing but good cards. And you're like, like, but if if I do that, then we're not making progress through the virus deck. And if we run out of cards before the virus deck runs out, we're pretty much doomed. But there are all kinds of doom meters in this game. We can run out of time if we take too long. There's a ticking time bomb that could explode on us. We can simply run out of cards. We can get, um, you know, our firewalls can collapse. So we get our brains fried. So there's all kinds of ways we could lose. Only one way we can win. We got to empty out the virus deck before time runs out. And so we are heavily incentivized to draw as many cards from that virus deck 
deck every round as we can. But as you might imagine, if we every card we draw from the virus deck, you have a choice. You can either absorb all the damage it's going to do to you and, and hit us in a lot of different ways, or you can put it up in this kind of communal deck, uh, or th this display where you can have up to three or four at a higher player count cards that we are slowly whittling down. So it's a bird in the hand, two in the bush. I could just say, hey, I'm going to kill this virus right now, and it's going to beat the crap out of me, but I'll survive. Or, this virus would kill me right now. Or it would, it would put our timer over the edge and we can't afford to do it. So, I'll put it up on the slow boat, and now we have to spend the next few rounds fighting it with all the other cards we've got. And that's an implicitly interesting decision. But it gets so much more interesting deciding how many good cards versus how many bad cards do I take when you're making the same decision at the same time, and we cannot talk about what, um, you know, uh, you know, what we've got. Um, and it's absolutely brilliant. Jen and I were both incredibly impressed. We were very impressed by the production value. Definitely, when it goes live on crowdfunding, check it out. My prototype had um, built-in plexiglass boards literally screwed onto the board so all the cubes would stay in place and wouldn't get shelled around. Very, very nice. Really great appeal. Uh, yeah, the, the art was great. The uh, graphic design was great. Jen was a little pushed off because there's no text. Everything, every effect is from a big smorgasbord of icons, so some people might be taken back by that, but I didn't find it to be too problematic. And um, yeah, the cooperative nature of this game, it is very... Uh, you are very lockstep worrying every step of your way because so many of your effects can affect everybody. A lot of them can only affect me, but a lot of them can affect me and you or can affect multiple viruses or just one virus. And once we've drawn our cards and we can't say what's in our hands and we have to decide because you know, once you've got our hands of cards, I've got my four, you've got your four, then we have to take turn playing cards. And we can play one or two cards, but we must play cards. And often, if I play this card right now, we lose. So I need to play this other card first. But before I can play that, you're first. You've got to play a card. And whatever you do, do not play a card to put anything in that space, because I need that space to stay open. I can't tell you why. Um, and so you'll do something, and then I'll put that... And you're like, oh! I have a way to counter that card. And so now what you were planning on doing is going to be completely different. This is a game every round. is a voyage of discovery as we're trying to figure out without being able to talk about right. I mean, I, I can heal us. I can't say how much I can heal us. Don't worry. If you think you're going to hurt, as long as it doesn't kill you, I'll be able to heal you on my turn. And you're like, okay, fine. And you take care... You're like, ah! I didn't think you were going to hurt that much. I can only heal you for one. It's not that, you know... That kind of, of uh, imperfect communication that requires us to constantly change on the fly what our plans are is just delicious. I love it in so many games. I love it in Gloomhaven. I love it in Hanabi. I love it in our number three of the month, Hacktivity. Okay, then we move on, folks, to number two. We've got Viticulture World, which is the third game. I promised there were going to be three popular, classic, well-loved games that have been around for quite a while, that have always been competitive games, that now, with expansions, have been turned into co-op. And of Maracaibo, Concordia, and Viticulture, I think Viticulture World does it the best. Um, because And it's just so many interesting things. Once again, like the other two games, it um, gives us... Uh, you know, We're still playing the game as it has always existed. If you like how Viticulture plays, it still plays like Viticulture. You still make all the same types of decisions, doing worker placement with your regular and your grande workers, You know, trying to build up your wine-making infrastructure, trying to invest in resources, trying to pick who is going to be first at the every round and what kind of bonuses you're getting. All the Viticulture biggest hits and, and 
And most importantly, those powerful visitor cards for the summer and the winter. Getting them and trying to find the best time to use them. All that stuff is still there. It all works fantastically. But um, we have now been given, in addition to a... every, uh, We have a group goal. Everybody has to score 25 points before the end of the game. Unlike regular Viticulture, where if I recall correctly, it's a race to 30 points. So um, that still feels pretty much the same. We still got to score points the same way. But we have a communal renown board, a score that we have to reach of 10 as well. And the only way by default to make that renown climb is by spending eight coins. So depending on the player difficulty, you might have to pay up to 80 coins over the course of the game. And that would bankrupt anybody. So you're constantly on the lookout for other ways you can make that renown rise while still playing a game of viticulture. And um, so... It's still great viticulture, and there's um, the interaction between players, which, like I said, was missing in Maracaibo. Uh, Concordia did it one way, but I think viticulture did it in the most fun way because if I put my worker out on a space, like giving a tour, and then you put your grande worker on that same space, we can engage in trade. I can give you a combination of things, you can give me a combination of things, and that's so crucial to winning this game. Um, And it really gets you so in lockstep because what will often happen is... Um, you know, I'm going to be really good at growing the grapes, but I don't have a medium seller. So we need to meet up so that before these grapes age anymore, because they're just going to be wasted on me because I don't have a medium seller, I need to get these grapes to you. Um, but what do you have to give me? Can you give me some cash? Okay. Well, okay. So if we agree that we're going to meet up on the harvest field in the winter, that's when we can do this swap before the end of the year. And there's so much intricate planning between players. In fact, I mean, some people might view it as a weakness, but Jen, I found we really love the fact that at the beginning of a year, Uh, And the game plays over six years, six rounds. A new event comes out, and then you can plan out everything you want to do in that year. And that's what Jen and I do. Okay, we're going to meet here on this one, and then we can work backwards on this. And it's so satisfying. It's so much fun. Now, you you can't always plan everything out because, of course, there's going to be surprises like what cards you draw, and you know. So there's still going to be um, you know things that come along, but. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Jen and I could not get enough of this, especially because in the box, there are seven different modules, seven different ways you could play this cooperatively. You could play it with unique player powers. You could play it with unique objectives. You could play it with multi-use cards. You could play it with tech trees. Um, and so there's so much variety built into this. I'm absolutely blown away, which is why Viticulture World comes in at number two of the month. But there's one more folks. It's Welcome to the Moon. I gotta say, folks, I was excited about this game because I already like Welcome to a lot. Uh, Welcome to is a very well-loved flip and write where players are, um, you know, uh, basically looking for combos of sets of cards that allow them to build the ideal French suburb and I'm always looking for points, scoring opportunities. It's a great roll and write. It's gotten a lot of expansions that really mix things up. And, um, you know, and spinoffs like Welcome to Las Vegas and whatnot. But Welcome to the Noon Moon, the newest version of it, just, as far as I'm concerned, obliterates everything that's come before. In fact, I'm going to get rid of my Welcome to, plus all the expansion content I got, because Welcome to the Moon, um, well, one, it totally changes the setting. We are no longer in the suburbs. We are actually going through an eight-chapter storyline trying to save humanity by colonizing the moon. And so this game comes with eight different um, player sheets. And each one of the player sheets works with the classic Welcome to gameplay, where every round there are three 
three sets of cards, a number and a power, and you've got to pick one of those sets. So, oh, I really want to put a number three over here, but I don't want to use that power. I want to use that power, but that's a that's a seven, and I don't need this. I can't even play that seven. How am I going to make that choice? It's always been wonderful and very well done, but now it's deeper than ever before because each one of these eight new player sheets, one of them is loading up the rocket to go to the moon. One of them is plotting the path to the moon. One of them is building our first outpost on the moon. One of them is doing mining on the moon. One of them is doing research on the moon. There's all kinds of stuff. And each one of these different chapters changes, or I shouldn't say changes, adds really cool new twists. Some of them are totally mind-blowing. Some of them still feel like, oh, this is 85% welcome too with these extra little bits. And all of them. Jen and I have played five of the eight missions so far, and we have been impressed by all of them. And if all that weren't enough, you could just, hey, I'll just pick a mission and play just have some fun. Or the game comes with like a big, deep storybook with branching storylines based on the choices you make during play uh, so you can play through an actual narrative campaign as well. They didn't have to throw that in. They already threw so much in with the um, reusable player boards, eight completely different um, alternate takes on Welcome To that so far, we've been very impressed by all of them. And again, the Welcome To gameplay has always been phenomenal. This is probably one of the most well-loved roll and rights or flip and fill flipping rights out there, and Welcome to the Moon just takes everything to 11. My only warning, if in case you want to seek it out, is the first mission where you're loading up your rocket, the rules are written very badly for that mission. Go download the FAQ from the publishers, because the first time I tried to play the first mission, it was a nightmare with the rules as written. But it actually plays fun once you read the FAQ. But uh, that's really my only complaint, because otherwise, everything about this game is stellar. Uh, it's to the moon. It's welcome to the moon, and it is my game of the month. And that's it, folks. Phew! Like I said, right up front, April was a very, very good month. Some might say the best month. I listed out all these big milestones. Um, And, uh, yeah, I I gotta say, considering the fact that April was the month of my 10th anniversary of filming the show, it makes me so happy that I got to play so much great cooperative fun stuff. Jen and I had a blast, but you know what, folks? Uh, There's no rest for the weary. We're going to be back next month. Me and Shay and Kim and Amy and Maggie and Ruel and Ryan. The team is bigger than ever before. And we're hoping to just continue to bring you all the latest, greatest, uh, and sometimes old classics too. uh, As uh, Rado Run Through continues for the next 10 years uh, to infinity and beyond. And if you want to know what's coming, folks, as always, you can hit that eye in the top right corner screen or follow the links down in the show notes to go to comingsoon.rado.com. And uh, we'll see what May has in store for us. But with that out of the way, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's gone on this journey with me. Thanks to everybody who has joined the show over the last year and has just made my life so much better and the channel so much better. And also, of course, thanks to sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. Have a very, very nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye.